There we go. I want to thank the praise team. Um, and I have a comment that I know you would amen if we were so inclined, but that is that it's obvious they worship the Lord with their talents, and that's what I call on them to continue doing. If you will turn your voice and your talents toward the Lord, we will join you, and that is the most encouraging and uplifting thing you could do for us, and it's, uh, it helps guide us in our own worship to the Lord, and we appreciate that. And uh, So I thank you that you're not trying to perform your worshiping the Lord along with other brothers and sisters, so keep that up. We thank you very much. After songs like that, I'm ready to leave and say, I have worshiped the Lord. I'm not trying to get out of preaching. <laughs> but let's turn our hearts to his word and continue worshiping and bowing before it as our authority. Join me in prayer as we open God's word. Lord, we do thank you and praise you and worship you as our great God. We are unworthy. You have called us your own children. Called us friends. And we don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus, for your willing, obedient sacrifice on our behalf when we didn't know what it was, we didn't appreciate it, we didn't ask for it, and yet you demonstrated true love. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that as we open it, you would do your work. Would your Holy Spirit in the abiding in the hearts of your own chosen ones do his work with your word, rebuke, correct, encourage, teach, guide us, strengthen us. Your word is our sustenance. It's our nutrition. Lord, by your spirit, strengthen our inner man that we might hunger for you and be strengthened through all of this life's trials and challenges as well as joys and rejoicings with our eyes fixed on the author and on heaven itself. In your name we pray, amen. When you were a young person, um, did you have someone that you looked up to, maybe even aspired to be, to be like? It could have been a talent, it could have been maybe somebody you watched. Most youngsters indeed, uh, aspire to be like their mom and dad. Uh, sometimes that's not even positive, unfortunately. But did you have somebody like that? Maybe it was a, um, maybe it was a pro athlete or an astronaut or maybe a famous war hero or leader. You know, if, if you did, and it's likely most of us did at some age, it ran through your mind, I really want to be like that. I really want to do those things. And I'm going to date myself, but I remember a, a song in a Disney movie in 1967. So I was 10 years old. I probably saw it when it first came out. I don't remember that. I remember showing it. to We, we bought it as a VHS and showed it to our kids. But in Jungle Book in 1967, there was a character named King Louie. He was the orangutan. And he did a jig and sang a song, I'm not going to do either for you, and you will be thankful. But the, the song was, I want to be like you. And he was singing it to the man cub, to Mowgli, the man cub. And he said, I want to walk like you. I want to talk like you. He had reached the pinnacle of the apes world in the jungle and wanted to aspire to greater things. And his greater things was to be a man, to walk like you and talk like you. That song actually spawned another similar, uh, it was actually an advertising theme that you may recall. It was actually that song in that movie that inspired an advertising agency who was hired by Gatorade to come up with an advertising theme 
Do you remember in the 70s and 80s the Be Like Mike, the Michael Jordan uh, advertising theme? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, some of you do. But the whole idea was he was trying to tie together. Michael Jordan was, if you don't know, probably, arguably even, the greatest basketball professional phenom that has ever played the game. Uh, and, and folks, young men, did aspire to be like Michael Jordan. They wanted to be like Mike. So this Gatorade ad tried to tie together, if you drink Gatorade, you can be like Mike, right? You know, even to this day, you can buy a book online. It, Michael Jordan didn't write it. Another uh, athletic guy wrote it. It's, it's how to be like Mike, life's lessons about basketball's life's lessons about basketball's best. So it, it, that's a, it's a common thing. Uh, in fact, Jesus said that a student will be like his master. That if there's somebody I admire and I want to learn from, it is common that I will become like them. That's both an encouragement and a danger that we need to be aware of. Is it a good thing? Should I ever desire to be like somebody? Scripturally, we're gonna answer that this morning and it, it is interesting, but uh, I would just say as long as the model or example points to Christ, we can certainly affirm that. The, it's the flip side of the relationship, but Paul suggested imitating another's not a bad thing. Consider these verses. I'm just going to fly through a few of them. It's to three or four of the churches that he wrote. To the Corinthians, he said, Therefore I urge you, be imitators of me. Again, in a different passage, to the, a different letter to the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. There's the qualifier, right? Philippians, brothers and sisters, join in following my example. To the Thessalonians, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then, in order to offer ourselves, Paul says, as a role model for you so that you would follow our example. So Paul clearly demonstrates that he has no real issues whatsoever with holding out his life as an example to follow. He often directed the churches to observe, to observe his life and follow that example pretty challenging to think about, isn't it? So the goal, according to Scripture, of course, is Christ's likeness. God's plan is to take those who belong to him and conform them into the image of Christ. But the confidence that Paul had was pretty amazing. Turn and open initially to Philippians 4.9. Let's consider another one of Paul's statements regarding imitation. He was writing the final couple of paragraphs in his letter to the Philippians to the saints there that lived in Philippi, and he makes an amazing challenge in verse 9. This is after telling them where their minds ought to be, right? Think on these things, whatsoever is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, whatever is of good report, excellent, praiseworthy, think on these things. Then he says, as for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here Paul says, examine everything I say, everything I teach, everything I do, even what you hear about me, and practice these things. I don't, I venture to say that's not something you would put out there boldly. It's pretty amazing. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment he's making, right? Which I've got to commend in fact, immediately before chapter 4, the way we've got it portioned out, in chapter 3 of the same letter, flip back just a page to verse 17 of chapter 3. He says the same thing, but he adds a, a comment that's worth noting. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's not laying out a casual task here. 
What he's calling for actually takes discipline. First, pay attention, identify the character traits that I've shown you. Then you must observe to even find them in others and identify those folks as they might be lived out. Compare and identify those who walk similarly and then mimic that example in your own life. It's not an analysis or an examination without an application. The goal is a godly walk. We must identify what a godly walk looks like in real life before we can copy it or try to mimic it. You know, we weren't with Paul. The Philippians knew Paul. Most of the believers that were there listened to him teach. We don't have that. We don't have the memories of him. We can't remember him sitting in our living room and teaching us the scriptures. We didn't see his interaction with people in Philippi. We didn't watch him hard at work, either tent building or whatever he might have put his hand to. We didn't see how he handled difficult situations or in Philippi, direct persecution and being thrown in jail. So how can we see and observe Christ's likeness in Paul that we should imitate? We obviously have a lot of his writings. We not only have the letters to the churches, we have several individuals letters he wrote to individuals, and then we've got Luke's record of an account from his conversion, even before his conversion, through nearly the end of his ministry. Not only do we have that, it is included in a portion of the written counsel of God, which authenticates and empowers it by the authority of the Holy Spirit through inspiration. So when we see Paul's godly example, even though we never knew him, and we read his teaching, it really should drive us both personally and then spiritually to aspire, to go to the Lord aspiring to and asking him to correct and reform my thinking, to modify my perspective, to modify my behavior. That process, which we know of as sanctification, progressive growing in godliness, isn't passive. This morning we're gonna look at three different character traits of Paul's, all found in the book of Philippians, one throughout, kind of, and we touched on it several weeks ago when we considered Paul's secret of contentment in chapter four. That'll be our first one. Then we're gonna look at two others out of chapter one. Each provide an example for us to follow, and they come out of this letter to the Philippians. Let's first consider the first one. It was when I talked about contentment in chapter four several weeks ago, we saw this character, but we didn't identify it specifically. It's that Paul maintained, every time we see him in the book of Philippians and elsewhere, but he maintained a godly, a godly perspective, an outlook on all of life. You know, eyeglasses determine how well our vision is corrected. I'm highly myopic. So without this, I'd be hard-pressed to identify most of you and your faces this far away. But with corrected lenses, I can see you and recognize you and look in your eyes and, and talk to you. But without my glasses, if you had corrected vision and we stood beside each other observing the world, your picture of the world would be completely different from my picture. You would see things I can't see. Our outlook and perspective as we go through life has some similarities. When limited to our own understanding, our perspective is distorted, originally by sin and then it's carried through. The way we see everything in our own understanding is completely twisted and distorted. Are there some things we might see right? Yeah. we might, but there's a bunch we get twisted on trying to, trying to assimilate and understand. Our circumstances, our relationships, our trials, on and on and on, everything in life must be informed by the truths of heaven. 
all of them, all of God's truth, His character, His purposes, His plans, His promises, must impact my perspective if I'm to see things the way God sees them. That was a perspective of Paul. Where did he get that? Where did he learn to adopt such a perspective and such an outlook? You know, we have one of his testimonies in chapter 3 of Philippians. He was no ordinary Jewish young man. He had high aspirations, high ambitions. He learned under one of the best in Gamaliel, a, uh, a great teacher of Judaism. In fact, he's writing to a group, we'll look at it in a bit, he's writing to a group that he would have deemed as unclean. These were almost all Gentiles. When he went to Philippi, by the way, normal practice was to go into the synagogue to begin to preach the gospel, right? He went to Philippi, he, there was no synagogue. They made it down to the river, ho river hoping to find someone that they could preach to. And the first convert in Europe came, Lydia, in Philippi. But they had nothing in common. A Jewish, here's a Jewish guy approaching Gentiles with completely different perspectives. But I believe that that testimony gives us a sense of where Paul adopted that perspective because he, he completely threw off everything he counted as valuable. All his ambition, all his aspiration, all of his training, all of his Jewishness, which in his world counted for a great deal, he said, I count it as, and the word is translated rubbish, it's really nasty trash. And he said, everything that I counted as valuable, I'm going to set over here for the sake of knowing Christ and being conformed to his image. I think that's where Paul began to adopt. I've got to look at things differently. And then he began to grow and be grounded in Christ-minded thinking. You know, when we look at his letters, and specifically at Philippians, we know he wrote it from prison. Um, it, although we wouldn't say that imprisonment was a super harsh one, I don't know that we can say any imprisonment is a good thing. He apparently was chained to a soldier under house arrest, so with the soldier he could go a few places and he could have some guests. It wasn't solitary confinement. But whether it's his imprisonment, um, which hampered his typical ministry. There were other believers, true believers, trying to add difficulty and affliction to his imprisonment when he was in there in Philippi, whether it was that, uh, phys physical discomfort and pain, which we know existed, the inability to, to move forward in his ministry the way that he was used to doing it, all of that. Even when we read it, there is not a hint, not not a bit, no insight, no clue of complaining, grumbling, discouragement regarding his circumstances, whether it's physical discomfort or frustration from not being able to do ministry the way he thought he should. When we looked at the secret of contentment a few weeks ago in chapter 4, what he said, and this is, you can look at it in chapter 4, verse 11, 12. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. So through the turns and twists of his circumstances, the ups and downs of his provisions, he was sustained by the strength of Christ. He had known the truths of God from his youth, but now by faith and with God's strength, he lived them out as a slave of Christ and hence became pleasing to God. So Paul maintained his God-given eyeglasses amid really difficult situations. God had put him in prison, so he began a prison ministry. He found strength in counting it all blessing from God. He practiced and demonstrated as an example for us 
what it looks like to maintain a belief in a sovereign creator, a sovereign plan. He showed us what trusting in God's loving control over our circumstances ought to look like. We know that the strength for Paul came from verse 13 of chapter 4, I can do all things how through Christ from whom the strength originates. I'm sure Paul knew Isaiah well and trusted in God's words in Isaiah 40. He gives strength to the weary, and to the one who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. So as an example for us, Paul maintained a godly perspective. By directing his mind and maintaining a prayer life, he practiced keeping the perspective, the glasses with the, the lenses of which allowed him to see the world as God sees it. So for the other two, so maintaining a godly perspective of his sovereignty through all of life's circumstances. You and I have to deal with that every day in some manner or another, small or large. Welcoming a trial as a friend, that's not natural. Complaining and grumbling comes naturally. So I invite you to open to Philippians chapter 1, if you would, to look at the other two traits that are demonstrated for us in Paul's life. We're going to read together the first 11 verses just for context. So just follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of, of uh, chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. We're not gonna step through these passages as if it's a book study of Philippians. We're gonna skip over stuff that is, uh, is important and is valuable, but for time's sake, we're gonna focus on just a few things that I wanna draw out. I can't skip over his introduction of himself and of the believers briefly, though, because he identifies himself as bond servants. You may know it, it's the word doulos. It's really slave. It's a true slave in the sense of ownership. Complete dependence, complete submission to the owner. Dependence both for what to do and for provisions. By the way, the call for that level of, of getting rid of my own will getting rid of my own plan is called for in every single believer. Nothing still held on to that's mine, nothing that I'm guarding that I don't want him to take control of, no area that he doesn't have a right to. It's, it makes me uncomfortable to think of the thoroughness of a true slave, and yet that's what we are called to be before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Paul includes both he and Timothy. That is the way they live their life. We are owned by Jesus. And it's, it's joyful, by the way. It is, his burden is light. Take his yoke upon you and learn of it. It's not a burdensome thing to be a slave of the Lord. So hopefully I didn't communicate that in any manner. We have an idea, certain carry baggage along with slavery. And that's not the case here. He is also calling us his friend, and yet we respond to him in complete submission. And then he, he identifies the recipients as all the saints in, in Christ Jesus, saints as holy ones. So he's identifying the true believers along with the bishops and deacons. So it's the only time he's addressed some of the leadership within the church. So the what that tells us is that the church at Philippi was probably well organized. Beginning in verse 3 through 11, though, Paul begins to pour out unparalleled warm affection for these brothers and sisters and opens a window to his prayers for them. And I want to look at just two obvious, you can't miss them, refrains. They're hard to miss in this passage. The first is that Paul bleeds a God-given affection for the saints at Philippi. He deeply loves these brothers and sisters and has no trouble expressing it. Secondly, we're gonna look at, he demonstrates a God-dependent attitude and approach to both life and ministry as demonstrated in prayer. Critical nature of prayer in life and ministry. So first, that he's got this affection that's, that you can't miss. Just look at three and follow through with me down to eight. All my remembrance of you cause me to give thanks, to bow my knee and give thanks to God. When Paul reflected on his memories of the individuals at Philippi and his experience with them, he can't help but give thanks. Do you have someone in your life that when they come to mind, you just can't, a smile breaks out on your face? Probably. That happened and then Paul took the smile and turned it to the Lord and said, thank you for the Philippians. That to me is amazing when you think of where these, what both groups of people came from. That these Gentile group of believers in a Roman colony could bring Paul, a Jewish up and coming ambitious young man, unbelievable joy, and would bring a smile to his face and an occasion to thank God. In verse four, always offering prayer with joy Prayer for them was a joyous occasion. In my every prayer of in my every prayer for you all, it was a clearly a repeated practice from verse four. In view of your participation, so both here in five and then in seven, the word is partakers. It's the same Greek word, and it's it's it's. Koinon, koina, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's koine, we know it. It's common, commonness. This Greek term, when I looked it up to try to grasp exactly what it meant, we don't have a good, the closest thing I could say that we understand is a familial closeness, a bond in family that is hard to break. It's arm in arm in a task with true brothers. It's the two guys in a foxhole or the two guys tackling a job or the two women who love one another and are whatever. It's, it's a bond that's closer. And that's what these, he both mentions it twice in five and second, view of your participation, your close partnership, you locking arms with me and that you're partakers in my ministry. It just speaks of a real closeness that's hard to grasp from those two words in English. And then in seven, he says, I have you in my heart. You don't tell too many people that. You are partakers of grace with me in seven. We drink together from the Lord's well of grace. And then it appeals to God as his witness for how much he cares for them. How I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is one place, when I memorized this years ago, I did it in the King James. I'm not a big King James guy, but it was what I had at the time. 
This is the one spot where the King James gets the translation closer than either of the others, but it doesn't speak to us so much in English. So the uh, affections is fine, but the word is literally bowels or innards. It's your guts. It's the deepest seed of our emotions. And Paul's saying, God is my witness how much I feel for you, how much you mean to me. Yeah, if I, in King James, if it says bowels and, and bowels of Jesus Christ, what does that have to do with in, in, now, in today's vernacular? These prayers are, and expressions of loving affection are authenticated by the way that Paul so intimately relates his experience with them and his concern that he expresses for them throughout the letter. Rather than some general prayer of thanksgiving, they are specifically related to the gifts and the needs of the recipients. You know, Epaphroditus is the name of the Philippi church member who delivered the gift that Paul is acknowledging in Philippians. His name was Epaphroditus. And he got sick near to death in trying to deliver the letter, came to Paul, or not the letter, the gift. Paul received the gift. Part of the occasion of this letter is acknowledging the gift. And he, one of the other occasions is to assure them, they apparently had heard that Epaphroditus had gotten really, really sick and they were concerned, and Paul wanted to alleviate their concerns that he had gotten better. And Paul hoped to send him back, probably sent this letter that he wrote back to Philippi with Epaphroditus. He says, Epaphroditus is coming first, probably with this letter. I hope to send Timothy to you, and then I still have plans of getting out of jail and, and, and visiting you again. When Epaphroditus returned back to Philippi and delivers the letter, obviously there was rejoicing. He's doing all right. He's back. He's our brother. Look, he's got a letter from Paul. Let's get everybody together and read it. I can just see this happening. Maybe Lydia's living room. I don't know what her living room might have looked like, but wherever it was, they gathered together, and the leaders, somebody was appointed to read Paul's letter. And on the edge of their seat, all ears listening, as what we just read was read to them. I'm sure that the hearers must have thought, he really knows us. He really cares for us. He really prays for us. Where did that level of fond affection originate? You wouldn't have matched these folks as friends, very different backgrounds and cultures. As I said, Paul would have called them unclean at, earlier in life. We know the answer, that it originated in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself toward the end of his ministry, said, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. John, his, one of his closest affectionate disciples, wrote several, several things that we could read, but he says, beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love for the saints is a work of God, a work of the Spirit. Paul also, not only did he demonstrate it, he taught that. If you'll flip to chapter 2, Paul calls on the saints in the beginning to put aside selfishness and empty conceit, to raise up the interests of others and not just your own, and with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves, 2, 3, and 4. He's calling on the Philippians to demonstrate the same Christ-like love to one another that he has just demonstrated and, and expressed himself. And then Paul points to Christ as the example of humility in laying aside his own will by showing the obedience to the will of the Father to the point of death. Romans 5.8, probably one of the first verses you might have memorized, but God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the true definition of love. And John in the gospel said, greater love has no man than this that a person will lay down his life for his friends. So he taught that we should love one another. He provided examples of what it looks like and wasn't slow to share what it looked like. 
And I guess as I read this and studied this, our cultures are so different from theirs. We live much further apart than they do. We don't see each other unless we purpose to. They saw each other all the time. Their occasion to be bonded was much easier to come by than ours. You have the food you need, the water you need, the cleanliness, medicine 24-7. You don't need me, earthly speaking, and I can live without you. It happens in neighborhoods, right? You move in and you can live there years and not know your next-door neighbor. They couldn't do that. There is no way they could do that. I think of that difference. I think, well, I mean, that's, we know we live there. God's given that, but we've got to overcome that because God calls us to love in a way that we can't love if we just meet on Sunday. I can't know you, and that's hard to come by because everybody's busy. So let's commit as a body to following Paul's example, fostering and nurturing, nurturing the things that lead us into godly affection for one another. And let's not be shy or ashamed to express it. Conversely, putting off the thoughts, the actions, or the words that divide and separate, we also don't see eye to eye on everything. Remember, Jesus in and I believe it was John 17, or it was certainly in John, his words, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have, if you have love one for another. So it introduces a question. I can't muster that. I can't just, oh, I feel for you now. That, that would be fake. So what can we do that fosters genuine affection, genuine care, I want what's best for you. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> that leads to the, the second thing we wanted to look at in the character trait that Paul demonstrated for us. Last week you may recall or you may have gone and listened to John David's sermon from Matthew 17 and you'll recall that the disciples had been frustrated. They had been given authority to cast out demons, and they were very successful at it. They went out and were performing this. Had to be cool. That had to be cool. But they ran across this young, this dad whose young boy, they couldn't cast it out. And they tried, and they didn't understand. So the man wasn't going to give up, came to Jesus. You remember the story. And then when, and, and Jesus spoke to the demon, the demon fled, and the disciples scratching their head. What happened? And John David explained to us that what Jesus said was this demon can only be cast out with prayer and fasting, which implies the disciples weren't praying and fasting. John David surmised that they had gotten used to the authority that God had given them to cast out demons. And perhaps, we do this all the time, by the way, apart from difficulties and trials, we stop turning to the Lord. And it's possible, we don't know for certain, that that's what it was. They were casting out demons in God's authority, but letting it rest on themselves. It is human nature, for sure. And that's us. Paul wasn't going to let that happen. He knew better than most that none of the power, none of the strength, none of the results rest in him. How do we see that? Where do we see that in these letters? It's in his prayer. Despite all that Paul had been given. By the way, we knew from chapter 3 the, just the full length of his Jewish credentials. And we knew, you know, if I said, okay, we know that he threw all that off. He called that rubbish. But, you know, even after he became a believer, he was taught by Jesus Christ himself. And at some point, he was taken to a third heaven and provided a vision of some spectacular revelation that he never gives us a picture of, but on the heels of which, I'll just read it. Because of this extra, the extraordinary greatness of this revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, 
to keep me from exalting myself. The demonstration that Paul gives us, and certainly God ensured that Paul, he pleaded with the Lord three times, and the Lord said, no, you're going to be satisfied with me. I don't, we don't know exactly what it was. Uh, I was talking with a brother today. One of the toughest things for us to deal with is chronic ongoing pain, serious pain. Can't sleep well, if at all. It's, it's a bear. You plead with the Lord, please remove this. It changes your lifestyle. Lord knows it. What do I do with that? What about, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, relationships, whatever it is that we're facing in trials, James 1 is still there. Count it joy when you, that is hard. But we are slaves. And we either trust him or we don't. He either tells the truth or he doesn't. Paul demonstrated a dependence on God that we see through his prayers. His confidence was in God's ability. I always, when I memorize Philippians 1, 6, 5, 6, I think it's 6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And he says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work. Where does that confidence? It wasn't, it wasn't in Paul's ability. It was that what God starts, God will finish. You call that perseverance of the saints. You call it whatever you want. But God was, but that did not give Paul an occasion to take it easy. God's doing the work. Now he worked. He was a slave. He did the work that he was called on to do. Three through eight, is his prayer mainly of thanksgiving. But I want to jump to 9 through 11 because there it jumps to intercession. He begins praying for the believers very specifically. He prayed that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He wants it to overflow in a tingly feeling all over? Hardly. I told Terry when I was studying this, you won't find this kind of love on the Hallmark Channel. What does it look like, though? What is love that is in real knowledge and all discernment? I want to touch on just a couple things. First, the object of this love doesn't change from the context of the rest of the passage. This is agape, but it's agape love that we show toward one another. That's the object of this love. Second, I just want to note that it's dynamic. It's, it's something that is ongoing and gr can grow. It's not static. You don't get it once for all. Our love our godly love needs to grow from the time we know the Lord till the time we're in his presence. It's similar to what Paul said about sanctification, his own testimony. He says in chapter 3, he says, Not as though I've already grasped it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I can take hold of that for which I am taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Growing in love toward one another is a lifelong discipline. As far as the description of the love, it's pretty interesting because we can go other places in the New Testament. To the Corinthians, for instance, Paul contrasts knowledge and love as two opposites. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So what is he saying? He wants your love to grow more and more in real knowledge. He also says, talks about the futility in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the futility of knowledge. He said, I could have all knowledge but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. What Paul's really indicating here is the way in which love should grow. Real knowledge speaks of knowing and understanding the will of the Father, the will of the Lord. Knowledge here is used in the way that we read it several places in the Old Testament. Hosea, for instance, would be a great 
example when Hosea says in chapter four, for there is no faithfulness, no loyalty, no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He's not talking about what information they have, but heart obedience, not mental information, but heart obedience was lacking. The people knew a lot. Here in knowledge of God and real knowledge in love is understanding the will of the Lord and a bowing to it. And then in all discernment, another way that could be translated is depth of insight. It's insight or wisdom that guides the application of knowledge, of real knowledge. It's mature, godly wisdom in action. And he says, if, if God will answer this, this is a, a chain of events or a chain of results. He's praying for one thing, that their love would abound more and more in real knowledge. And in, that's what he's praying for. Then the list in 10 and 11 are subsequent results that will come out if God answers this. The first one is the ability to distinguish what is excellent. This isn't in situations choosing between what's good and bad. This choice of what's excellent is between what's two very common, very good things. You know, if I was to say, uh, and this, this is in love oftentimes, what is truly best for the other person is what love is about, right? How do I know what's best for them? When there's several good things, that's what this is pointing to is the ability to distinguish and determine what is best when it's not an obvious choice, to guide between two good alternatives. Secondly, the, lo the, the love that he describes will lead both saints in the church to a purity or a sincerity and blamelessness in the day of Christ. Many of you might have heard this word picture, but it's a great word picture to understand what he says here that it yields to a sincerity and a blamelessness, particularly sincerity. The, the word sincere, and this, this goes with the description of, of the context of this, comes from a root sincere, it means without wax. Maybe you've heard this story. Roman pottery, after it was formed, had to be put in an oven and baked, right? And it is not uncommon that it cracks. Um, side issue, but it's amazing. I, I'm in the packaging business. Toto Industries, who makes ceramic bowls and tanks for bathrooms, has a 55% result going through the oven. In other words, they only get 55 out of 100 toilets they put in come out good. They crack, and they can't, they're, they're gone, they're no good. That is amazing. That means they throw, and you can't recycle ceramic. They throw away 45% of what they make. Isn't that crazy? Well, the same process happens with pottery. They put it in the oven and it cracked. Well, that's a waste for, it's a waste of good molding clay, it's a waste. So the unscrupulous potter would then fill the cracks with wax and paint over it. And then he could sell it until you put something really hot in the pot, right? And the wax bakes. The idea of sincere is without wax. Legitimate pottery salesmen would stamp sincera without wax on their pottery to indicate the quality of what they sold. Similarly, a Christian is to open himself up to see the faults so that they can be dealt with, so that they can be repented of, so that they can be remolded. The way that what way folks got used to finding that is they would hold the jar up to the light, and although ordinary light, you couldn't find the crack, the sunlight would shine through and you could see the crack and know it wasn't valid. Believers are to put their life under the light of Scripture, that God might bring the dross to the top, find the cracks in my life. That's not a fun process. It's heat. It's light that I don't want shined. 
That's the result, though. We don't aim at that. Paul prays for the love first. This is a byproduct of God answering the first prayer. And blameless means can't be held in offense. Subsequent result also of the chain is it leads to being filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. These are the good works described in Ephesians. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus spoke very clearly in the John 15 passage on the, the, uh, the vine and the branches. Chapter 15 of John, Jesus says, Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can only accomplish a little bit. Somebody correct me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 8, he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is a byproduct of a close relationship with Jesus Christ. All of those things flow out of the godly love that Paul prays for the Philippians, and that we ought to be praying for one another and for ourselves, more discerning about choices, truly sincere, blameless, fruitfulness, lives that bring praise and glory to God. These are just three of the examples that we draw out of Philippians that Paul gives us, both in his teaching but in his life that we see and how he dealt with things. Maintaining a perspective of God's sovereignty in life, fostering a God-given affection for the saints, demonstrating by prayer a total dependence on God, That's what we're called to do. Let's pray that these things wouldn't just pass through, but we would see them as examples we really ought to follow, whichever it is, because we'll face every one of those we face daily. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for calling Paul for his ambition and commitment that he cast off all that meant a lot to him that he might be found in you, share in your suffering, demonstrating what a true servant or slave to the Father looks like. Father, we know that we have scripture that is perfect. And we can look to Scripture to understand how we might grow in Christ-likeness. Prior to Scripture, Paul pointed to himself as an example. And you incorporated that in the Scripture we have. Help us as we see how he responded. Measure it alongside of your responses. Lord, grow Jesus more and more in each of us. Help us to think the way you think, to see the world the way you see it, not for our own even well-being, but for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.